0: Combustion, if not done properly, is uh, not clean. What can we do from a technology standpoint to make sure that whatever leaves the exhaust pipe of the car, or the the stack of the power plant, Mm -hmm. or the the stack of a ship, or the turbine of the aircraft, how can you make that emission least harmful to the environment and to human health?
1: Welcome to Science Town podcast about the most unique research community on the planet. With every episode, we will bring you cutting-edge tech, science, and startup culture through the eyes of pioneering men and women, their journeys cross disciplines and cross borders in the pursuit of world-changing science.
2: Hello, I'm Nicholas DeMille. And I'm Ben Stevens. Welcome to Episode 5 of Science Town. In much of the world, cars are more than transportation. They're cultural artifacts, they're icons of cool, and unfortunately the combustion engines that power them are contributing to the changing of our global climate. Stopping use of the humble combustion engine, while an easy answer, has proven much more difficult to implement. In truth, we all love the luxuries that the combustion engines of the world bring even if we loathe the long-term impacts. In this episode, we explore the middle way, hybrid technologies, cleaner fuels, and the way forward for cleaner forms of combustion in the 21st century. So combustion is
0: basically the conversion of any type of fuel to energy using a heat thermal process.
2: That's Manny Sarathi. He's an associate professor of chemical and biological engineering and associate director of the Clean Combustion Research Center at KAUST. Combustion requires that
0: uh, yeah, you elevate the fuel to a high temperature, okay. and that high temperature then uh, activates some chemical reactions, which produce a lot of heat. And typically, that combustion, that heat that's generated, is used to, drive an engine to make work. And this is what we're all familiar with. We're familiar with engines for automobiles. Mm-hmm. And uh, most of the engines in automobiles are, are uh, combustion engines, internal combustion engines. They burn something inside the engine. It produces heat, which creates the power for work. So nowadays, we use combustion uh, everywhere. Mm-hmm. Probably more than 85% of the global energy demand is met by it. Combustion, really? It's burn. that high? Yeah, it's that high, and and that's mainly because of uh, transportation, okay, aircrafts, ships, uh, automobiles. But then uh, you have you have combustion also to produce electricity. Mm-hmm. So you're familiar with coal in uh, North America. They burn coal to make heat, and they yeah. use that heat to drive a turbine to produce work, okay. and that work is converted to electricity, sup- supplied to the grid. So stationary power generation, electricity has more diversification. You have combustion, but then you have hydroelectric. And you have nuclear power, and then you have uh, things like wind and solar. Mm-hmm. So combustion is, first we like to tell people, combustion is everywhere. Yeah it's, uh, yeah, it's what powers most of our economy. The economy that we have globally today depends on low-cost transportation of goods, yeah, which is globally traded around the world, which is driven by our availability of uh, transportation, driven by
2: combustion-based power. So in a way, it's um, more of a hidden thing than people realize, like the degree to which combustion plays a role in their daily it's, life. It's and hidden. And it's not just their car. It's a lot of
0: other oh, stuff. Oh, it's a lot of other things. Mm. And that's that's sometimes a challenge. You, you hardly see the combustion power plants. Right. There are sometimes... Uh, dozens of kilometers miles outside of the city mm-hmm. yeah not too far away mm-hmm. but far enough away so you don't see them right because <laughs> right? these are big operations yeah. and typically they like to keep them outside because uh, not very beautiful sight and sometimes you i've been to these power plants uh, you feel like uh, an ant in the size of these uh these plants so yeah <laughs> hidden and we want it to be hidden right because because uh, combustion is not clean
2: I'm I'm sure that what you're doing as a researcher is you're saying there's X percent of efficiency. Even if we change nothing about uh, the mode of generating energy or transportation, there's a wedge of efficiency that we can get out of making this clean.
0: So so clean to us means burning less fuel. So like I said, combustion conventionally and inherently is unclean. Mm. It's not clean. Because mm-hmm. the problem is you convert some type of fuel, hydrocarbon, or biomass, wood, to uh, heat and work. But there's a lot of byproducts. Right. Yeah, The ideal products you can make are CO2 and water. But it's never the case where you make 100% CO2 and water. You always make some uh, particulate matter. You make some undesired uh, emissions like nitrous oxides. If your fuel had sulfur, you make uh, sulfur-based emissions, and you make all kinds of unburned hydrocarbons. And right. these are har- harmful to human health, yeah? Right. They, they pollute the air. Right. So combustion, if not done properly, is uh, not clean. So there's a big impetus to improve air quality, to improve uh, the state of cities by just making, from an emission standpoint, combustion to be clean so right. so for one thing from our side is what can we do from a technology standpoint to make sure that whatever leaves the exhaust pipe of the car or the exa- the stack of the power plant mm-hmm. or the the stack of a ship or the turbine of the aircraft how can you make that emission right. uh, least harmful to the environment and to human health per
2: unit of energy per unit of generate. energy produced
0: right. no. Uh, even if you do that, you still produce... Ideally, you produce CO2 and water. And now CO2 is a big problem on its own. Right. It doesn't have a direct impact on human health uh, or, uh, or the state of air quality, but it has secondary impacts by Im- influencing climate change. And the only way to uh, eliminate CO2 is to burn less. So for every unit of work you generate... You need to burn less fuel. You need to produce less CO two, and that's efficiency to us. Efficiency mm-hmm. to us is how much work can you get out per unit of fuel that went in, mm-hmm. or how much less CO two can you produce per unit of uh, fuel that went in for for a, for a certain amount of work, right. and that to us is also clean, yeah, because CO two is okay, CO two is not a pollutant in its classic sense, but it has a detrimental impact on the environment. Yeah, and. We need to minimize that emission hmm. so the only way to do that is to improve efficiency. Now typical automobile engines, light duty engines we say globally on average for a gasoline engine, they're only about 20 to 30 percent efficient. okay Wow on average that low that low, very low. From the fuel going to the work yeah uh, for driving the automobile, turning the wheels yeah, right It's only about 20 to 30 percent efficient. And most of them are on the lower end of that that
2: scale you could, the rest of it goes off in heat heat and, yeah heat is a main loss just waste
0: yeah, and then uh, transmission losses right in the automobile uh, heat in the exhaust heat losses in the engine the combustion efficiency is actually quite high we're very good at burning things inside the cylinder but then you got to take that and convert it to energy so there's lo- there's losses there friction in the tires friction wind, yeah um Drag, yeah, drag, aerodynamic yeah. drag on the vehicle. So then you have a diesel engine, mm-hmm. which is more efficient by nature of the combustion process. You can produce uh, more work for the unit of fuel that goes in. So a diesel engine might come closer to 40%, 30 to 40%. Okay. And uh, we try to work on automobile engines, which are breaking 50%. Okay, so if we can change uh, the average global fuel efficiency in automobiles from say that 20 to 35 percent up to 50 percent then you've had a huge impact yeah
2: you've you've potentially reduced co2 emissions by half so if i understand that correctly if i'm a pickup truck and i'm working at 20 percent efficient and all of a sudden i get an engine swap out and it's 60 percent efficient that's three times three times the efficiency
0: basically treat three times less uh, fuel consumption and then you take this and If you can couple this engine with a hybrid electric powertrain yeah which is which is the way engines should be used in the future because we don't want to operate the engines in the entire spectrum of their capability engines are fabulous because you can go from a standstill to uh, 150 kilometers per hour uh, and back down to standstill in a matter of uh, 20 seconds Not many technologies can do that. That's a lot of power to distribute, a range of power. But because we do this with the engine, we operate the engine in a lot of regions that it's not very efficient. Right. Yeah, especially in the acceleration phase of a vehicle, the engine is not operating very efficiently. You have more heat losses, you have more thermal friction losses. Uh, One that when you reach steady state, say cruising at 150 kilometers an hour, Then the engine is very efficient so it makes a lot of sense to to have a hybrid (laughs) electric powertrain yeah uh, electric motor to deal with the acceleration Mm -hmm. uh for example in cities a lot for start stop driving for idling and then uh you only use the engine when it's most efficient and now you're now you're talking about something that now rather than uh, three times more efficient you're talking about an entire powertrain solution that's a uh, five, six, seven times more efficient, because you use electric motor, where it's uh places where the engine is on average less efficient, and then the engine can easily operate fifty above fifty, fifty five percent efficiency as l- if it's uh, a very narrow operating range for the device.
2: So, so we've had the combustion engine for one hundred and fifty years, right? Mm-hmm. At least, yeah, it's about one hundred fifty years. Um, why has it taken us so long to get to this point? Is it just because it was cheap and easy to do it the way that we were doing it as inefficiently as we were doing it? or
0: Well, there's a nice graph showing the power density of the engine mm-hmm. improvements over over time. So power density is how much an engine say an automobile engine is rated by the size of the engine. We might we might hear about a three liter engine or a four liter engine or a six liter v8 hot rod engine, yeah. So this, that's how, that's basically the displacement of the engine, and the displacement is how much uh, fluid that the engine can move to produce work. Okay, So the displacement determines the power and the work output of the engine. So, and how do we rate that engine? We, we talk about the displacement or the size, 3 liter, 4 liter, 5, 6 liter, but then we talk about the horsepower. How much power does it put out? So... Uh, you might talk about a oh, 200 horsepower engine or a 300 horsepower engine. Now, in the past 60 years, the combustion engine it has improved considerably. Actually, the displacement, so the amount of power per unit of displacement, is uh, is phenomenal. Now, I don't have the I don't have all the details of that of this graph, but it shows from the 60s to now. You know, before we might have needed a 8 liter engine to put out 300 horsepower. Now we do it in a 2-liter engine, but with technologies like turbocharging, downsizing the engine, a lot of modifications to the engine. So the engine is, for the same amount of power, the size of the engine is much smaller, and the amount of uh, fuel that's used is much less. So it's not to say that combustion engines have not improved. They've improved a lot. Okay. You might say the problem is that consumers demand a lot of power. Yeah, If, if instead everybody was happy with a 100 or a 50-horsepower engine, Actually, we would be producing very efficient small engines for uh, 50 or 100 horsepower, but consumers demand 200 horsepower, 300 horsepower. Yeah, w- we do work with McLaren and Formula One. Right. They have a 1.8 liter engine that puts out 750 horsepower.
2: You're kidding.
0: That's You know, 750 horsepower. Right. Now, so that, that means we have technology. You can easily get a lot of power out of a very small engine, so just as long as uh, society and uh, consumers are happy with less power, we can. Uh, automakers will produce engines. So that's the size of a Formula One engine, 1. Yes. 1.7 liter, 1.8 liter. 1.
2: Yeah. 8. Wow.
0: And 700 horsepower. So it's putting out. Yeah, you know, you typically think you need a very big engine, right. like a Ferrari uh, V12. Right. Eight liter engine to put out that kind of power, but you can. We have combustion technologies. Uh, so that so that
2: thing is just all body and housing and frame under that you know shell. It's yes. yes I yes. guess you look at it and you're like, wow, there's a jet engine under there. But
0: uh, yeah, but the engine is relatively small, pretty small, and it's a hybrid. So it has it's uh-huh. about seven hundred horsepower from a, from a combustion engine, mm-hmm. and about two hundred fifty horsepower coming from an electric motor, all packaged together. It's almost a thousand horsepower. Wow. So technologies exist, right. and these technologies can and should trickle down to consumer automobiles. Mm-hmm. But uh, again, there needs to be regulation, there needs to be demand. So uh, the only way to, to motivate consumers to, uh, to use these types of vehicles is to put some regulation. You could easily say, okay, we don't want any CO2 in the atmosphere, we won't burn anything. Yeah? And this is the solution of many environmental advocates. Leave it in the ground. Yeah? Don't burn the fuel in the first place. Of course, seemingly makes sense. Right. If you don't burn anything, you don't make any CO2. Okay, but still you need to produce uh, terawatts of energy. These huge power plants I was talking about for millions of households got to be replaced with something. Right. And in 20 years, to think you're going to replace it with renewables Mm -hmm. is uh, quite a daunting task. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's... Technology might exist. Don't I? Don't uh, I? Don't actually believe technology doesn't exist. I think renewable energy technology is there.
2: It's just scaling. Uh, it th- yes,
0: yeah, scale. The scale of the problem mm-hmm. is just phenomenal, and 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 it's not the scale of the existing problem. It's a scale of uh, a global civilization twenty years from now, which is growing. Yeah, two billion more people uh, coming in the next twenty years or thirty years. Mm-hmm. Uh, more and more economies becoming more and more energy hungry as they develop. India, China, Africa, Southeast Asia, Western, Eastern Europe, yeah. you know, all these places, South America, all these places are only going to increase in energy demand. This together with a need for uh, renewables at such a large scale, it's going to be very difficult to meet with without considering combustion-based technologies.
2: cutting-edge tech, science and startup culture. Sciencetown. In January, I sat down with Manny Sarathy and Matteo Parsani to talk about their research and how a partnership with McLaren Racing centered on extreme performance tech is helping make Formula 1 cars faster and more efficient. Technology that will ultimately become the engines of the future. Hello and welcome to KAUS Live. We're coming to you from the Winter Enrichment Program. This year's theme is Time. And here to speak to us about the science behind building a faster Formula One car is Matteo Parsani, Assistant Professor of Applied Mathematics and Computational Science, and Manny Sarathi, Associate Director of the Clean Combustion Research Center. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, um, So in 2018, KAUST signed a five-year R&D agreement with McLaren. Um, tell us, how did that idea come about? Maybe, Manny, you can get us started. The way KAUST came on the radar for McLaren
0: was actually through one of our prime partners, uh, Saudi Aramco. Okay. So that was, I think, in early 2017, is okay. when they first heard about KAUST from uh, the CTO of Aramco. Mm-hmm. And then later in the year, in, in 2017, they actually made a visit over here. Mm -hmm. Uh, The chief business officer, John Cooper, uh, the race director at the time, the chief engineer at the time for the Formula One team, all came to KAUST and uh, they saw our facilities. And then as as they visited several more times in 2018, they they came to realize KAUST has many things to offer, Mm -hmm. not only in the field of combustion, like uh, what our team works in, but also in applied mathematics, extreme computing, sensors, uh, machine learning, many
2: different areas. So, Matteo, tell us a little bit about what CFD is in broad strokes mm-hmm. and how that applies to
3: um, making a car faster, essentially. Well, uh, CFD, it's an acronym for computational fluid dynamics. Yeah. And uh, it's, uh, what we do is solving a set of a physical equations. Mm-hmm. Uh, using a computer, which describe uh, uh, the motion of particle of flow around object, around you know anything we want. What we are trying to do with the uh, McLaren is you know um, try to advance the aerodynamic design for the next generation of Formula One car. They are really you know trying to uh, um, get something like a 0.1 seconds per lap. Mm-hmm. Uh, Doing some uh, innovation in the front part of the um, front wing uh, end plate of the Formula One car, mm-hmm. so you're talking about you know a fraction of a second, but if you multiply by don't you know 50 laps, this is going to be maybe one second or two seconds or whatever, and this can make really the difference between you know the first uh, position and you know maybe the fifth the sixth, or the tenth one
2: right right um, then are you involved in the machine learning aspect of this too or, or? Uh, does it, does it help you develop better algorithms? Like, does it maybe suggest it, routes to go
3: in? Uh, yes, yes. So mm-hmm. the, the idea is to feed to some kind of neural network, um, a data set, mm-hmm. which uh, this data set will help us, you know, to uh, tell to the solver where uh, the solution is interesting and how to refine their, you know, the property of our solver to capture this uh, uh, flow feature, which might be interesting for McLaren. Right. Uh, if you're talking about the Formula One car or for any other application where we want to apply our solver. So that's one of the applications.
0: We have colleagues in uh, the Clean Combustion Research Center that can do computational fluid dynamics, CFD simulations for combustion Ah. rather than aerodynamics, but on the combustion side. Mm -hmm. And then we have uh, groups like the group that I lead that develop chemical reaction networks to predict how a fuel would burn in an engine. So putting this all together in one place is quite rare. And that's what our center offers. And that's one advantage that uh, McLaren found in partnering with us is they could come to one place where they could look at uh, experiments related to new types of fuels, even simulations, Uh and thereby advance what types of fuels are being used in the sport.
2: Um, I I think one of the things that you actually work on is large eddy simulation. Is this part of that, of basically the chaos of the system?
3: Talk a little bit about that. What McLaren is currently doing, they're using a, a very good model, which mm-hmm. is used in industry, where they can have, you know, uh, six, seven, eight simulations per week. That means a turnaround 24 hours per, per simulation. Wow. And so they can test several configurations. But uh, uh, the level of accuracy of this model is limited. I mm-hmm. think we really hit the limits of this model. So the next step is to go for a large eddy simulation, which allows to resolve better some physical Feature inside the flow, and that will provide better knowledge of the flow field to design, you know, the aerodynamic part uh, of the car. So yes, right. that's what I'm interested in.
2: Well, that's very exciting, and we really appreciate you guys uh, coming to chat with us about it. Best of luck. In December, Science Town will be down on the track at the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix subscribe to join us in the pits as we geek out on the tech behind some of the world's most powerful and efficient combustion engines.
4: At Kaos we tried actually now to you know from one side keep the focus on basically producing more oil because there's still demand for this mm-hmm. you know and uh, at the same time we try to address if you like the other challenge which is actually how can we produce now keep producing oil at the same time, you know, addressing the, you know, the climate change issues.
2: That's Hussein Hoteit. He's an associate professor of engineering resources in the Ali al Naimi Petroleum Engineering Research Center at KAUST, speaking with my co-host, Ben Stevens.
4: So one area that we're looking at right now is trying, uh, in particular for Saudi Arabia, we're trying to understand, if you like, the the emissions map Mm -hmm. from, from the kingdom, looking at the different industries, where the most of the CO2 is coming from, like, for example, uh, electricity. Right now, you know, the uh, power plants, they use uh, burn hydrocarbons, you know, gas or oil, actually Mm. to produce electricity. And these are big sources for uh, CO2 emissions. And then you have other industries like desalination also, you know, this is a big industry that requires also a lot of hydrocarbons as well. And others like petrochemicals, you know, refineries and so on. So we tried first to understand the, the emission map and try to underdi- identify actually these sources uh, and understand them in terms of let's say in terms of rates, how much actually they're, they're emitting in terms of the uh, concentrations and so on, the industry type. And the, the purpose we're doing this is that to try to see if is there actually a way to improve on reducing this emission at the first place. Mm-hmm. Meaning that, you know, can you do for example in in places where you think there, there is room for improvement in terms of efficiency for example or using maybe renewables and so on so by understanding this uh, emission map and the industries probably you can for example work on the uh, replacing uh, the type of hydrocarbons like in many places we're still using heavy oils for example mm-hmm. heavy fuel oil to produce electricity and these are uh, not as efficient as gases for example uh, natural gas in that they release more carbon they re- dioxide? Yes, they re- release more carbon uh, dioxide with less efficiency. Right. So by understanding this map, you can think of maybe, you know, let's go after the low-hanging fluids first, you know, <laughs> before actually start to think of even actually going renewables or replacing all these plants can at least, you know, improve the, uh, the combustion technology there. see if we can find the potential sinks for these this, uh, emissions. And sinks meaning that actually bringing, capturing this CO2 and uh, try to find if there are potential subsurface reservoirs where we can entrap that CO2. And this uh, has both sides as well. From one side, this could be, you know, used to uh, maybe enhance our recovery, you know, uh, uh, and also could be basically we use some what we call you know deep aquifers where we can actually just uh, you know entrap co2 in abundant you know uh, saline aquifers in the subsurface
5: what's the feasibility of doing that in in saudi arabia in terms of the economics and, and what are the challenges
4: of course you mentioned economics right mm-hmm. that's the bigger bigger challenge actually here you know up to now the the major challenge is in the you know the cost of capturing co2 we, we have the technology but it is very costly. So this is, this, if you like, the, the major bottleneck here. You know, h- how can you reduce the cost of CO2 capture? Now, in terms of handling CO2, meaning that, you know, uh, once you capture it, we can compress it and at high pressure, for example, CO2 will be, uh, will be liquid-like. It, uh, we call it supercritical CO2. In this case, you can have pipel- pipelines, for example, you can transport CO2 very efficiently and uh, we know how to inject it as well. You know, so the oil and gas industry have used CO2 for enhance or recover for a long time. This started from the 70s. When you inject CO2 for enhance or recovery, you have a business model. So yeah. you, have you can actually, if you like, pay for the uh, you know, uh, CO2 capture cost mm-hmm. and the transportation. But as a return, you can produce more hydrocarbons that you can, of course, sell and you know, pay for the uh, cost of the CO2 capture. Now, when you think of using CO2 for sequestration, meaning that only actually dedicate a project for CO2 sequestration without, if you like, any return mm. out of this. So you, you only capture CO2 and then you inject it in the subsurface. There is no business case here. Okay. You only actually have a cost associated with this. Mm-hmm. So the biggest challenge now, who's going to pay for it? Okay. Do you uh, translate that cost to the consumer? Do you put a tax there on CO2 on the consumer, saying that you know you're burning CO2, uh, sorry, burning uh, gas, then you have to pay actually for basically CO2 sequestration or CO2 uh, capture at some point. Well, this could be a solution, maybe a long term at some point, but you know, if you like, everybody now uh, worldwide is worried that this may impact the economy and the lifestyle and so on, right? For, mm. for it. So. Up to now, my opinion, you know, the governments at least. They may feel the urgency but there's no action.
5: I guess in some ways you're calling for a policy intervention which would see these companies that have essentially done the R and D about storing, transporting CO two being paid by other large corporations to store their the carbon that they have produced. That's the kind of thing, but that requires intervention doesn't it it requires a market it requires pricing and all those sorts of things and also consumer buy-in then on top of that <laughs> yes. say you've you've maybe solved some of that you've you found an aquifer to put the carbon in mm-hmm. it's a, still a challenge f- to keep it there isn't it
4: of course you know as you mentioned you know what big issue right now is the policy right and mm-hmm. the the economics and so on right um so this from one side right and then the other side you have the technical challenge right uh, from a technical point of view, we have a good handle of the whole, if you like, process from the capture all the way to the injection and the uh, sequestration process. You know. mm-hmm. We do uh, this every day, including here, by the way, in Saudi Arabia. There's an ongoing right. CO2 pilot uh, happening right now. And this has mm-hmm. been going on for uh, since 2015. Mm-hmm. So the oil and gas industry has the experience okay, on, on mm-hmm. doing this. But, of course, you know, this doesn't mean that, you know, you don't have a risk, right, associated to it. So mm-hmm. when you entrap CO2 in the, these aquifers, CO2 will stay, you know, at high pressure. Of course, you try to not to overpressurize the, the subsurface, you know, and uh, ma- making sure that you have the right rock in term, you know, that can entrap CO2, you know, prevent it uh, from leaking or flowing on the subsurface. So it is going to be contained on the subsurface. Yeah. But this, you know, there's always risk. If you, if you have bad luck in selecting, a, you know, a reservoir, for example, it may, ha- it may happen, for example, that you have some fractures or some faults, And there is, in this scenario, there is a risk that you 2 may, uh, you know, leak and eventually end up in the surface, you know, and maybe uh, may cause some, some damage to the uh, underground water and so on. And there is also, there is no clear policy in terms of liability. So, in other words, if a company, for example, a surface company right now can go, let's say, as I mentioned, you know, they can bring CO2 and inject it and entrap it in the subsurface. Say, 10 years later, CO2 starts to leak. Who's Mm -hmm. liable? Yeah. You see, and so on. So this is is still not unanswered questions, you know. And worldwide, you know, people trying to put regulations there, write policy, you know, where they can, if you like, encourage the industry, the public sector, to basically step in and uh, take action as well. And uh, to do actually any change, you know, or any uh, measurable action on CO2, in my opinion, the oil and gas industry, can play a big role here. They are the only industry, in my opinion, has the experience, right? And Mm -hmm. it has the technology and the capability, actually, to, to conduct this type of projects at big, big scale. Great. Thank you so much for talking to me. All right. Great. Thank you very much.
2: Science Town, brought to you
4: by KAUST.
1: As the world runs out of the, the nice, easy-to-get crude, crude oil like uh, Arabian light, um, you're going to have to start looking at more alternative fuel sources.
2: That's Bill Roberts, professor of mechanical engineering and the director of the Clean Combustion Research Center at KAUST.
1: You're certainly going to have to figure out how to mitigate CO2 emissions. You're going to eventually have to be climate positive be able to pull CO2 out of the environment. Um, And combustion can play a role in that. So for example, you could take uh, biomass or municipal solid waste, agricultural residuals, and, and burning those, either gasifying them and burning them or burning them directly, and then capturing the CO2 from the flue gas and sequestering that geologically. So in effect, it's a net reduction in the CO2 in the environment, and you're allowing plants to do what they do quite well, pulling CO2 out of the environment.
2: Is it more efficient to build a, a personal power plant in a car, or is it more efficient to, to have uh, more efficient uh, you know, infrastructure? Yeah, th- these yeah that's a great
1: question. So we want to be clear when we talk about electrification, whether we're talking about battery electric vehicles, right. hybrids, or, or straight traditional IC engines. Hybridization makes sense virtually always. Right, So these are the most efficient engines. The engine can run at a single load speed at its sweet spot on demand as necessary. You have to be more careful when you start talking about how much battery capacity do I want to carry. right? And so you go to one extreme, and that's a battery electric vehicle. Uh, the other one is just a pure hybridization. In between, you've got plug-in hybrids, which have a large battery capacity but also have a small IC engine. You don't want to be carrying around a lot of mass that has nothing, it's not contributing anything, right. like a battery. Right. Um, so I think uh, battery electric vehicles make sense in some driving scenarios, in some regions, wealthy countries, um, countries with short commutes. But you're right, you're, just, you're displacing where the energy conversion is occurring. If, if the electricity is being derived from renewables, it's that piece is carbon neutral if you look at the entire uh life cycle of the battery then you have to worry about you know how much is how much what's the environmental impact of 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 of, of pulling the rare shot of out of africa and yeah. right uh, which is non-trivial F- for passenger fleet hybridization o- almost always makes sense if you start moving up into trucks it gets a little more Difficult if you start talking about aviation and and, and marine shipping. It, it's highly unlikely. If if carbon capture is mandated or something that we decide collectively that we want to do, it's much easier to collect carbon out of a power plant, out of a stationary unit, than attaching something to a car or a truck. I see. Right. It's going to be very difficult to to do effective carbon capture on a vehicle.
2: Right, because you'd have to do the process and then carry it with you.
1: And then store it until you got somewhere where you could dump it. Right. So I think decarbonizing power generation is straightforward but expensive. Mm -hmm. Um, Decarbonizing mobility, I think, is much more challenging because I think then you have to look at the fuel source because you're not going to do it post-combustion. So then where does the fuel come from? Um, Are these renewable fuels, electric fuels, solar fuels, fuels that um, you decide I'm going to have to pay the carbon tax, but I'm going to pull the carbon somewhere else out so that the net carbon is is neutral or or, um, negative, which we have to eventually get to. We were working with several in-Kingdom companies because, of course, uh, Saudi Aramco is one of our major partners. We're looking at, um, again, advanced, gas ter- uh, advanced internal combustion engines and fuels and fueling strategies for efficiency and, and emission mitigation. The kingdom is also interested in um, a scenario where they pull a hydrocarbon out of the ground, strip the carbon off, put the carbon back down well. And then ship the hydrogen somewhere, um, and and their countries, Japan and South Korea, have committed to a hydrogen economy. Um, but trying to ship hydrogen from the kingdom to Japan or South Korea is not easy. Yeah, what uh, form does yeah. that take? So if you uh, typically they they can compress it to seven hundred atmospheres, about seven hundred bar, which takes a lot of energy. You know, a, a pressure vessel that can handle that kind of pressure.
2: And then and then what are they using it for at the other end? Is it...
1: to, to, they burn it in a gas turbine.
2: I see. Okay. So, they... so essentially a hydrogen car, but at, you know, uh, uh, at, scale. At, scale.
1: Yes, at the hundred megawatt, hundreds of megawatt scale. So what we're interested in is looking at converting the hydrogen into something else, shipping that. And then maybe or maybe not converting it back to hydrogen at the other end. So one example would be converting it to ammonia. So ammonia is uh, nitrogen with three hydrogens on it. So you can convert this. Uh, ammonia, you can liquefy at 7 bar. So now it's hundred, one hundredth the pressure. And it's quite similar to petroleum, L- LPG, liquefied petroleum gas, in terms of pressure. So we we have a lot of infrastructure and technology built around these kind of pressure vessels. Ammonia is used a lot in in fertilizing manufacturers, so we have an ammonia distribution network set up, and we have the ability and the technologies to handle this. Mm -hmm. So one vision would be that you pull the hydrocarbon up out of the ground, you strip the hydrogen off, pump the carbon down well, convert the hydrogen to ammonia, Mm pressurize it, liquefy it, ship it, and then at point of use, you decide how much of the ammonia do I want to convert back to hydrogen, Mm -hmm. and how much do I want to burn as as ammonia. Because ammonia will burn, it's just, by itself, it's not really appropriate um, as a gas turbine fuel. But if you take some fraction, Mm -hmm. convert it back to hydrogen, so now you have a mixture of hydrogen, nitrogen, and ammonia, can that be a good fuel? Is it is it easier
2: to burn if it's a much larger engine, like a marine engine?
1: Probably not. I think that you will still want to convert some of that back to hydrogen. To hydrogen okay. hydrogen, um, And so these are the, the the questions that we're looking at. You know, it's the it's the trade off of where you put your energy, right. and uh, and what emission problems you cause. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are several groups um, that are looking at this. Um, we have a. A workshop coming up in February on on decarbonizing mobility, and um, this will be one of the fuels of of interest that we talk about. So yeah. we're so we're looking at heavy trucks, um, marine transport, and aviation, mm-hmm. because I think the passenger fleet is pretty well in hand through hybridization, uh, hybridization, electrification, uh, small engines downsizing so it's that truck transport network that's going to be i think that's yeah, uh, yeah that's the hard part
2: I, I know you're a car guy so have you seen uh people have started taking tesla engines and putting them in uh, in hot rods and things no i haven't
1: but <laughs> but but you know this uh, formula e these these cars are amazing they're tremendous aren't they and you know, my <clears throat> sister has a tesla and uh you jump on the throttle and it's impressive. Right. I mean, the performance is really impressive.
2: Yeah, do yourself a favor and um, go down a YouTube rabbit hole on okay. this. Uh, okay. Lots of um, sort of nerdy looking Teslas beating, <laughs> beating uh, hot rods, which is funny.
1: They, they are, it's impressive. I, I think uh, Elon Musk has done a great job with that. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you.
0: You're listening to Sciencetown.
5: Within your your team, you use what are called specialized reactors and shock tubes. Can you talk about what these are and why they're helpful?
6: So, as I was saying, the combustion is a very complicated process. It involves heat transfer, it involves fluid mechanics, it involves chemical reactions uh, which happen. And all of these physical and chemical processes take place simultaneously in an engine or in a gas turbine.
2: That's Amir Farouk, KAUST Associate Professor of Mechanical Engineering, speaking with my co-host, Ben
6: Stevens? So if you want to optimize the combustion process, then we have to decouple these processes and understand them individually and then optimize them individually. So that's where the the reactors in my lab, which are custom designed, specially designed, are there to look at the chemistry uh, of the fuels or chemical kinetics of the fuels so that we can, from an experimental perspective, just focus on the chemistry and tell apart between fuel A and fuel B which one is better in terms of efficiency, which one is better in terms of emissions, just based on its molecular structure and at the molecular level. So these reactors uh, provide us uh, conditions of high temperatures up to 5000 Kelvin, high pressures up to a few hundred bar, so that we can not only study what happens in, from chemistry perspective, what happens in the current engines and turbines, but what could do in future in modern reactors, in modern engines, which would be working at much higher pressures and and different conditions than current engines. So so the way these reactors in my lab are designed is that they provide very uniform conditions of temperature and pressure where the only thing which affects the conversion of a fuel to products and um, other species and heat release and so forth is the chemistry. So then we can really focus on, on the chemistry and and make some very impactful conclusions about various fuels. Because you're taking the other variables out of H- the equation. Out of the equation, exactly. Yeah. exactly.
5: And um, there's an element you, you have with sensors and lasers. Can you talk a little bit about that?
6: Yeah. So uh, because chemistry is um, is complicated in itself, you don't want to perturb it by anything else. So for example, if I want to know wh- how much NOx is being formed via fuel or how much carbon monoxide or CO2 is being formed in a, on a transient basis. the one way would be that I can stick in a probe in my reactor and then try to sample and send it to a G- gas chromatograph or mass spectrometer, but that way I'll be actually perturbing the chemistry in itself. Mm-hmm. So that's where the lasers come in. Lasers provide us a way to in situ or non-intrusively see what happens in a chemical reaction or chemistry. So what I do it is that I develop specific laser-based sensors to target specific chemical species in, uh, in the chemical reactions uh, or chemical systems we are studying. We make these lasers pass through optical access in our reactors, such as the shock tube or rapid compression machine. So then in a very non-intrusive fashion, we can detect the uh, intermediate compounds being formed, how the fuel is being consumed, how the products are being formed, what are the concentrations of, of pollutants and so forth. We can even detect radicals. Oh, for example, OH radical is the most important radical in not only combustion, but also for atmospheric chemistry. And really the only... Good way of measuring this OH radical is through the laser based sensors that we develop because they would just uh, dissipate if you use some other sampling based method. So that's why the lasers have been really critical and important in our quest of finding the chemistry of fuels and finding the next generation of future fuels.
5: course there's quite a big lobby that would say natural gas oil should stay in the ground yeah. obviously there is scepticism so why can the combustion process ever really be clean why are we sticking with it and what would your response yeah. be to that Yeah,
6: I believe the future uh, solutions have to be a combination uh, um, of a number of technologies electric vehicles would definitely have a place in there uh, we have already seen in the power generation quite a bit of penetration of uh, power by solar and, and wind energy and that's, that is to remain there and that is, that is going to expand. But when it comes to for example transportation yes there will be electric vehicles but even so far we have seen that their penetration has been pretty small and there are, cha- there are specific challenges that is affecting their further growth and part of that is the cost of electric vehicles another part is the energy density of batteries Okay, so mm-hmm. that doesn't lend itself to be quite well for either long distance travel or heavy travel Traffic, like trucks and marine, and I think it will be almost unimaginable to, at least with the current battery technology, to think that they will be flying on an aeroplane from here to San Francisco on a on a battery-powered uh, aeroplane. So so for a number of these technologies, there is still a need for liquid-based fuels. Now, those liquid-based fuels can come either from fossil resources as, as is happening now, gasoline, diesel and jet fuels, and that's where the combustion process needs to be optimized so that we make better use of these. Uh, we can d- decrease the emissions, increase the efficiency, so decrease the impact on the environment. But then we are also looking at, in our group and other places, on alternative liquid fuels. So fuels which are produced, let's say, using what is called electric fuels, e-fuels, using some sort of solar energy to make liquid fuels. Mm. Others could be biofuels, fuels that you make from from bioresources. So these are alternative fuels, and to convert them to for uh, an energy conversion process, you would still need a combustion process. Okay, so so combustion is not only for fossil fuels. Combustion could also be a very viable way of of using other renewable, alternatively, liquid fuels. And in terms of can combustion really be clean? That's 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 a very viable question. And in terms of clean, there are two aspects. One is the Emissions which let's say harm our health. So this would include the NOx, soot particles, some other unburned hydrocarbons Mm -hmm. and for that the research and the actually the application in the industry has shown that you can make the combustion process to be quite clean by these after-treatment systems. If you optimize the engine and have these catalytic after-treatment systems working in their best possible fashion mm-hmm. and not sort of cheating like Volkswagen did, <laughs> right? Uh, you, would, you can make the emissions to be really, really low and have, have these vehicles actually running in the middle of your, your towns and, and not be worried about that. The second aspect of their of being clean is the global warming impact, right? Mm-hmm. And that one as we have talked is a bit more tricky, right? And that the the changes will have to be gradual. We can increase the efficiency, but there won't be drastic improvements, but even small improvements will make an impact. And if you couple that with other technologies like EVs and hybrid vehicles and so forth, we will start to see an impact of all this investment and research. Thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. Well, it was a pleasure.
2: Thank you to all of the
6: scientists who took
2: time out to speak with us for this episode. Science Town is produced by Mark Bowes, Alex Aries, and Ryan Yang-Yang. I'm Nicholas DeMille with co-host Ben Stevens. Thanks for listening.
1: This podcast is a production of King Abdullah University of Science and Technology, also known as KAUST. You can find us on all major social channels, wherever you get your podcasts, and at scienctown.kaust.edu.sa.